Hello and welcome to the March 2020 episode of the History Twins podcast. I'm Aiden Kaplan. And I'm Tristan Kaplan. Uh, today we are interviewing Professor Didac Geralt of, the, of Yale University. Geralt has written extensively about political economy and his work examines how war, trade, and political competition influence fiscal institutions. Uh, Professor Geralt, we'll start with your article, War, International Finance, and Fiscal Capacity in the Long Run. Uh, you note in your paper that wars from 1816 to 1913 occasionally improved states' fiscal capacity, that is, the ability to assess individuals' wealth and monitor taxation in the long run. Uh, could you provide us with a few such historical examples? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, um, so my favorite case is uh, Chile, um, because it offers uh, basically uh, two... Uh, a, a historical counterfactual uh, within the same case. So basically you keep uh, factors constant. Um, and this is basically a country that when had access in the 19th century to external uh, capital, like in the war against Spain in the mid 60s, it basically used uh, all uh, the ability to borrow uh, from the British markets to finance war and actually uh, domestic debt to GDP increased by 300% and the flat rate remained uh, flat. Um, but 20 years later, uh, in the War of the Pacific, uh, the country was uh, in default, so it was uh, basically uh, excluded from international capital markets and it uh, basically uh, put forward a battery of uh, fiscal fiscal uh, reforms that eventually transformed the, the, the not only the, the types of taxes that they would collect, um, and we can talk about how much the, the, the nitrates weighted in, in the new uh, tax composition, but also in the bureaucracy, because it basically reshuffled the entire tax bureaucracy of the country. So, yeah. So, why did financing war with external debt generally weaken states' fiscal capacity? Well, it doesn't have to. Uh, um, so it's not that external finance is bad per se. Uh, the the point of the of the paper that I published in IO and the book manuscript that I'm working on is that uh, the incentives to the the incentives to finance uh, sorry the, the incentives to conduct fiscal reform are uh, uh, weakened when alternative uh, alternative options uh, are available and that um, history tells us that many countries that decided to go for external finance eventually defaulted and when a country defaults on its external debt it has to renegotiate with uh, foreign bondholders the terms under which the country can regain access to international capital basically they have to uh, come to a to an agreement and when we read the fine uh, print of these default settlements, we see that um, there was subs substantial debt relief, extensions of maturities, reductions of rates, and more in critically for state formation, uh, uh, the exchange of uh, uh, equity or basically public assets or sources of revenue for war debt. So basically a country would regain access to external uh, finance without having conducted any fiscal effort to regain, sorry, to basically repay taxes. There would be a transfer of wealth but to, to external uh, bondholders, but the country would actually lose uh, part of its tax base. And so that's why 
it's it's risky to finance war with external finance. So why would some nations choose to finance war with external debt rather than uh, just regular taxation, given the advantages of the latter? Yeah, uh, well, as for I mean, there are several aspects uh, of to, to to answer the or to this. Uh, the first one is that. Uh, when you fight war, you want to collect taxes as fast as possible. You want to minimize the uncertainty of how much you're going to um, have in your pocket in order to know what you can, like the military equipment, uh, where to uh, or when to send the troops. Uh, so there is a military advantage. Uh, there is also an economic advantage. Uh, if you raise taxes, uh, you might distort uh, uh, basically uh, consumption behavior, right? People don't like to pay higher taxes. And if you are fighting war, that, make, that might make the ruler unpopular. And you want to avoid that at all costs. And the third one is that um, what we know from the history of, 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 uh, of this, as David Stasavich called it, the states of credit in, 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 in Western Europe and also borrowing from the work of Northern Wangast is that, and, and, and Leon and, and, and Bates, is that taxes don't come for free. If you want to raise taxes uh, and you want to uh, induce compliance with a new set of taxes or basically with enforcement of the existing taxes, you might have to give some uh, political rights to taxpayers, right? And uh, political rights, we don't have to think of the democratization per se, but basically have a say, having a say on how the money is spent or how or which kind of taxes are. Are, are are raised and that uh, uh, enters uh, into the realm of power sharing institutions, right? And we know that rulers don't like to share power. Um, and if they have options that uh, allow them to basically dodge uh, sharing powers with taxpayers, chances are that they will that they will use them. So there are many reasons why debt, particularly external debt, is preferred to taxation. So why were the fiscal effects of war from 1860 to 1913 so long-lasting, given the general brevity of the wars themselves? Uh, yeah, well, so first I will, I will, um, I will cast the part of the statement into question. The, the, so if one uh, works with general uh, war data sets, like... No, uh, uh, um, oh, sorry... Um, Well, with general uh, war datasets, uh, the average um, uh, duration of war in the 19th century was about four years, uh, which is uh, similar, if not larger, than average war in pre-modern Europe, right? If, we, if, we, if you compare those statistics to mm -hmm. those reported by Charles Tilly, for instance, uh, in 1990s, uh, there is, I mean, we can, we can, we can question that assumption. Of course, war was different, and there was nothing like the Seven Year War uh, mm -hmm. outside Western Europe. So that's, but that's a different topic. Uh, so wh why, why war has lasting effects? Uh, so um, uh, there, there is basically, I, I, I consider two mechanisms of transmission in my own work, and there may, may be others. Uh, one is that uh, if, if war is. Um, if war is financed with taxes, um, basically rulers will be compelled to 
uh, and uh, to put forward um, fiscal reform, um, fiscal innovation, like the uh, creation of a treasury, the creation of a central bank, the hiring new tax officials or uh, making them uh, professionals, the centralization of uh, finance. And uh, all of these measures improve the fiscal position of the country. Uh, and, and rulers, uh, I like to think that they are revenue maximizers because first you want to amass as much money uh, as you can, then you decide what you do with that money, right? But basically it is in the best interest of the ruler to keep those institutions in place, right? Once you have assumed the uh, short-term cost of uh, put, uh, putting them, putting them uh, in, in, into, into action. This is like the what I call the bureaucratic mechanism, right? You have these institutions, and they basically um, um, outlast war. And some, I mean, like Schumpeter and others, have um, also um, uh, um, have characterized this this idea of uh, the bureaucracies being a state within a state. They, vest, they, they generate generate a vested interest in uh, organizational survival, so they will uh, basically um, do their their best to make sure that the organization survives over time. So that's uh, part of the bureaucratic mechanism of transmission. The second one is that if we believe that uh, taxpayers need some uh, uh, say, power in, in, in fiscal uh, policy uh, in order to uh, abide by, by the new tax code, uh, you can think of taxation, uh, war taxes uh, as an opportunity to advance in power sharing institutions, meaning that the ruler gets to uh, amass the money that he she needs uh, in the present and in the future to fight wage the next war, but the taxpayers also are able, available to, able to uh, hold the, the ruler accountable, fiscally accountable. So everybody, everybody wins and that's how you turn taxation into a non-zero-sum game. Uh, Tim Besley and, 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 and person, Anderson Person call those kind of agreements a common interest uh, equilibrium, right? So that's, that's, that's how uh, taxes um, might, um, might uh, outlast war. Certainly a common tendency in modern war seems to be that governments, instead of uh, externally financing their wars or taxing, simply print a lot of money. Mm -hmm. uh, so are there any cases of countries in the 19th century that did something to that effect and permanently ruined fiscal capacity rather than improved it? Uh, absolutely. What, what, what examples can you give of that? Well, I think that all, almost everybody, almost everybody. Uh, printed money. And again... Um, uh, the social, I mean, but, so, everything else constant. So my point is, everything else constant. The incentive to tax should be stronger if you are excluded from international markets, mm -hmm. and, and 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 that's why I test that hypothesis with 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 data. But uh, other than uh, strengthening the incentives, uh, there's no way to. Uh, guarantee that the ruler will take that position and at the end of the day and, and, and this should be uh, clear uh, taxes are financed with all means possible okay so this is not a story about financing war one way or another the question is that um, uh, if, if we want if, if in my opinion if we uh, expect war to translate into something good statewise uh, 
war sh part of that war should be financed with taxes, but money will print. Uh, uh, will I mean, governments will print money. Uh, I mean, the United States. No, I mean, they did so, um, and, and governments will borrow externally and, and domestically if there is a, a, a domestic credit market, which is quite exceptional in the nineteenth century. But yes, so there are multiple ways to finance war. So could you explain the difference between wars fought with credit flows and wars fought with no credit? Uh, yeah, so that's that's so empirically that's that's a, a, a challenge to uh, identify the effect of causally identify the effect of, of war on state making because maybe countries that fight war uh, when they are excluded from uh, international markets have higher fiscal capacity to begin with, right? Or they might choose whether to fight a smaller type of war. So I basically uh, I address this issue in the IOPs by uh, basically um, study study wars uh, that were initiated initiated while money was still flowing in uh, from uh, while cap international markets were were still open and suddenly uh, they they collapsed so the rulers have basically to 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 i mean the 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 incentives of the rulers are exogenously uh, changed uh, and and what i see is that those wars uh, actually improve uh, tax capacity in the short and in the long run. When the ruler was uh, basically uh, lacked this uh, external option, they were on average more likely to conduct the fiscal, fiscal reform. So for maximizing long-run fiscal capacity, was it better for a country to fight a war with credit or without access to credit? I think, I think there's no good answer to that. Um, um, I'm, 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 I'm not trying. I, not nothing in my research has implications uh, about that. I'm just pointing to uh, what is the political economy of war finance. What are the uh, benefits and, and and the costs? Uh, and and um, yeah, um, maybe. Uh, I mean, the the thing is that if you get to finance externally. You have you are able to uh, uh, outspend your rival, right? And that might be good because maybe you can impose uh, uh, war uh, reparations uh, on the other side, and and that might be good somehow. Um, um, so those kind of counterfactuals are really are really hard hard to hard to make, and I prefer not to <laughs> move into the realm of speculation. So, how greatly did you observe the effects of war varying between countries which initiated war versus those which were uh, defending themselves from war? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so, so let me begin. So, I I, I address that empirically, but um, for many war uh, uh, scholars, uh, any data set that. Uh, has tried to code whether a country initiated or responded to an aggression uh, uh, is unconvincing, right? Because um, war, war is very endogenous normally, right? It's basically the end of a failed uh, negotiation and you don't really know who actually initiated. That said, there are data sets out there and one can see whether there is any difference um, uh, between uh, aggressors or uh, non-initiators, that's how they call it. And what I find, um, 
maybe surprisingly, is that the effect on tax capacity of countries that were non-initiators, conditional on not being uh, or, or conditional on being excluded from international markets, is actually higher, right? So basically, there is a more a stronger effect of war on taxation, and and, and why is that? My hunch, and this is only a hunch, um, is that uh, when you are uh, when when somebody attacks you, uh, the 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 ruler can basically appeal to nationalistic uh, um, claims uh, or to nationalism, and we know that nationalism is important because is it it basically it facilitates. Uh, um, compliance with taxation to some extent, right? So uh, that might be, a, if any, a positive effect. Yeah, you could expect the rally around the flag effect, so to speak, to be larger for a country which is being aggressed upon than a country which yeah. is aggressing, right? right? That's right. Uh, just out of curiosity, were the countries which were being attacked more likely to use a taxation or external debt to finance the war effort? Well, again, um, because that's the, the thing is that this is played with endogeneity issues. So what I do in, in this paper is I exploit these shocks in international markets to get rid of the, this choice that rulers always have, right? So uh, this effect uh, is, uh, is identified assuming an exogenous provision of exter access to external capital, right? Is, is that clear? So basically, the, the fact that I just mentioned you is about is 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 the one that I find for wars that were waged while lacking access to external capital, because, not because of uh, um, the characteristics of the country involved in that war, but because there is there was a shock in international credit markets that uh, um, that basically stopped capital uh, inflows uh, for reasons that are orthogonal to the country that is uh, waging war. Yeah. Uh, what is the periphery as you define it in your article? <laughs> yeah, uh, so, yeah, uh, so the periphery, uh, I, yeah, sometimes I think that they should have uh, used the expression emerging economy, uh, although some of these economies were, were always, did never emerge in the sense that they never grew. Uh, so the periphery is basically everything other than uh, the great powers. Um, I mean, that would be a, a shortcut plus the United States and and and, and, and Japan. Uh, so uh, like Southern Europe, uh, where I'm from, uh, is the periphery. Uh, Eastern Europe, Northern Africa, Southern Africa, Latin America, Asia. Uh, so everything outside like this European core. Um, so what are the most notable uh, differences in the effects of war that you observe between the periphery and other parts of Europe or other parts of the world, and how do you account for them? Can you, can you repeat the question, please? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so what are the most noticeable, noticeable differences in the effects of war that you observe between the periphery and other countries, not in the periphery? Yeah, well, the peri yeah. Yeah. so the, 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 the effects for the periphery are, are, are worse, um, just because... Um, they have a lower fiscal capacity to begin with, and they are more exposed to uh, 
these shocks in international uh, capital markets, right? So we already knew these in the like in the trade literature. They know that uh, the, the the income in the in the in the emerging economies or the periphery is dependent on on the commodity, international commodity prices, right? So, uh, but at the same time, this means that um, these countries, because lack most of them lacked uh, uh, domestic credit market once they were excluded from international credit had stronger incentives incentives to rely on domestic taxation where where, where i mean did they i mean and not every of them basically uh, used that opportunity right um uh, from 1816 to 1913 wars were rarely fought in europe but rather exported to the periphery during the height of colonization how important was this fact to your thesis? Uh, surely the European countries which experienced warfare at home and lost continental ter territory during this period, such as France, Austria, and Denmark, mm -hmm. also saw their fiscal capacity reduced, at least in the short run. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it is true that um, many, war, uh, many wars outside Europe were against uh, European colonizers, but there, was a, there is also a war going on uh, between neighbors that mm -hmm. don't have don't have basically any direct connection with 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 Europe. Um, uh, in terms of uh, so, what was the second this part of the question? Uh, oh yeah, so like the European countries which experienced warfare at home and lost continental territory during this period, did they see their fiscal capacities reduced at least in the short run? Uh, well, the thing is that these European uh, these colonial wars, um, I mean, were definitely costly for mm -hmm. the countries that were uh, colonized and invaded in terms of the lives that they're paid, uh, the brutality, the exploitation, uh, but also costly for the colonizers. But they were right? also costly for the colonizers, and actually there were a lot of uh, complaints uh, in in Western Europe. I mean, and Br uh, the, the British case is, is, is paradigmatic that uh, there was this uh, ob objection to f uh, fund and to finance uh, war and uh, government in general in the in the colonies because basically they felt that the metropolis was paying for 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 the colonies and that is disputed but but the point the point being is that uh, it I mean putting all this colony uh, colonial power into action also required uh, uh, some effort uh, from the colony some yeah because they also extracted resources like India for instance was a net contributor to to the finances of the British Empire right? yes the standard consensus amongst historians is that Fought wars fought to obtain colonies were generally not profitable, right? And also, of course, the colonies afterwards were not profitable for the European countries which owned them. But as you point out, these very colonial wars were possibly able to improve the fiscal capacities of these European countries. Do you think that the effects of colonies on the mother countries have therefore been underrated? Positive effects? Uh, so I'm... Um... Uh, I'm not an active participant in that debate, uh, but if, yeah, uh, assuming everything you said, I would say that yes, they are underrated. Uh, I mean, the fact is that uh, nobody obliged these European powers to have a, 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 a colonies or an empires, but yeah, they they kept them right. Mm -hmm. So there must be uh, maybe it was your strategic. Um, but my theory is that it's mostly nationalism, where like you maintain lots of pretty useless colonies, but at least you got to say it in a part of the map which says that you own that island or whatever useless territory. 
that might be a factor too. Yes, right. yes. Yes, I mean, certainly this is the standard case for press, I say, Germany after uh, the, the Franco-Pressing Wars, that pretty much the colonies are accepted by everyone as being not profitable, not very likely to be made profitable, mm-hmm. right? But it's yeah. mostly just, it's just nationalism, really. Like, Wilhelm thought it was a good idea to get colonies, and he wanted it to save in the map. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but but the truth, I mean, so so uh, for my for my for the book, I mean, I, I, I'm basically um, uh, working with um, I'm putting together a, a new data set on, in, on, on sovereign loans um, for the 19th century. And what you see in the archives is that there was a lot of well, in the archives and there is a lot of published work uh, that there was a lot of investment, um, European investment in uh, the colonies. So uh, maybe the state was, I mean, uh, subsidizing the, the like the, the the budget of 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 the colonies, but for sure there there were a lot of private profits, right? And the railways and, mm-hmm. and that brought a lot of money, and also state monopolies were basically captured by international investors, and that should also be factored in the the uh, the, the benefits and costs of colonization, and, and that's why I think that. You gotta be careful. Yeah. 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 Uh, so many countries in the periphery engaged in secessionist wars, most notably in Latin America. Uh-huh. So, what effects on long run fiscal capacity do you find for these secessionist wars versus mm-hmm. regular wars? Yes. So, uh, what what I found is that the 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 so, okay. So the data set that I've been using for my my work is Vimer and Lean. Uh, and that was the data set I was referring before, and they they happen to code civil war into nationalist or non nationalist, and 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 secessionist or not. So basically, I've been able to run an analysis uh, for for secessionist war, and I find the same effects that uh, for international or interstate war. Um, and that doesn't mean that uh, the effects are positive or negative. It de- they depend very much on whether they were financed externally or not. Um, many of international, many wars of independence in Latin America were funded with uh, British capital, and the results were not good. Actually, those loans were defaulted uh, early on, um, and also like in. In Greece, also the independence war was uh, was was financed with external mm-hmm. capital. So basically, those secessionist wars uh, and, base, and, and, and those specific wars uh, seem to be uh, replicate uh, interstate wars uh, in in terms of the incentives for politicians and to build state capacity. So you don't think it was necessarily worse for a secessionist war to, uh, on, like, or in other words, you don't think that the effects on fiscal capacity were necessarily more negative for these secessionist wars? So if it was secessionist, meaning that they were fighting, uh, fighting against uh, a colonial power, I think that the effects uh, are similar, uh, basically because you are mobilizing an entire country to fight an external an external threat. The thing is that this external threat is is the metropolis, right? But uh, de facto, it's like an external actor. It is this is very different from civil war, and and the literature on on civil war has yet to come to. A, I mean, it's very it's basically uh, we know very little about what is the effect of civil war uh, on state-making. 
uh, and that's because that then you have these split countries, right? And and the, we still have to understand what are the dynamics going on. So let's just talk a little bit about civil war. Mm -hmm. So a number of countries in the periphery with one independence following uh, the, the, their secessionist wars, such as you know countries in Central America, Argentina, Peru, Bolivia, say, uh, experienced civil wars afterwards. Mm -hmm. So do you think that it's plausible uh, that these civil wars have very negative effects on fiscal capacity, whereas the secessionist wars may be pretty similar to a normal war, and overall it would have been better for those countries to have remained as part of uh, the mother country? Yeah, again, um, this is entering the realm of speculation. Uh, so, yeah, so the first hand, I mean, my, my first, uh, basically, uh, uh, response to, to, to civil war is to think it as a negative thing. But we have, uh, uh, we have some recent papers that suggest that civil war might be good under certain conditions for state, for state uh, making and for uh, tax compliance. Um, many of these papers uh, draw from recent civil war in Colombia. Uh, so one has to establish what is the external, uh, not the external validity, but how well the, the scope conditions in those in uh, in that in that setting uh, speak to the scope conditions in other places. But uh, but so so basically, the more one reads about civil war and state capacity, the complex the picture gets. Um, so I think this is actually the frontier of the literature in uh, state capacity, state formation, state building. It certainly seems hard to believe that the Civil War on average would be good for fiscal capacity. Uh, it, you know, because you elaborate a little more on how it, civil wars could be good. So, for instance, uh, some 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 scholars have argued that civil war can uh, cut um, infuse uh, pro-social behavior after the war is over. Um, of course, this is basically in-group. Uh, so basically, you are more cooperative with your uh, 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 with your peers. You might be less cooperative with uh, with with uh, uh, people from from the other uh, side. But suppose that you have a federal state. So in order to raise taxes, you just have to cooperate with uh, your people, right? So in that case, you might end up with a scenario in which. Uh, Civil War ended up uh, in uh, high fiscal capacity relative to pre-war years. So, I mean, again, this is a very complex picture and we don't have yet a theoretical framework uh, that allows us to simplify the many, many basically... Sir, yeah, um, sir, the question was just to give us an idea because I think lots of people immediately say, how could Civil War be good? Yeah. So so for anybody interested in civil war, I strongly recommend Anna Arjona's book uh, called Revelocracy. One of the things that you get from that book, and uh, I, uh, she's still working on 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 this on this uh, project, is that uh, yeah, civil war happens, but conflict doesn't happen. A military conflict, assassination doesn't happen everywhere in the country, right? Mm -hmm. So so even the experience of going through civil war might be very different in different parts of the country. So that's where things get really, really complicated. Uh, because maybe in, in... So if we think that the, like the location of troops are endogenous, 
a lot of things can be going on, uh, but if they if they are endogenous, they might position, they might uh, locate in places in which they are favored by the local population, and that might raise fiscal capacity locally. Again, very complex, and and this is basically, in my opinion, the future of the field to address these questions in a rigorous, systematic way. What are the biggest outlier countries that you observe and how do you account for them? So uh, when I say outlier here, I'm going to specify. So I mean specifically like countries with low fiscal capacity despite preferring taxation over external debt to finance wars or countries with high fiscal capacity despite preferring external debt over taxation to finance wars. Yes. So, um, uh, so I don't know if this might not address your question directly, but I can tell you which is the country that makes me think. Um, most about mm-hmm. about fiscal capacity building, and th- this is the case of Japan, mm-hmm. because this is a country that uh, had a very light uh, tax administration, a very pre-modern tax administration um, in the mid nineteenth century, and it went through all these uh, political and fiscal reforms, and it borrowed a lot of money, uh, and it never defaulted, right? So. Uh, my, the puzzle uh, for me about this case is why why this country uh, I mean I guess it was always tempted to default but what prevented this country from uh, uh, to, to default right so this is the one that really this is the one that really that really bothers me because I think that's if we answer that question and maybe as some of your listeners might know the answer to this question, this it might be very 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 illuminating for policy implications, right? So how you prevent countries to default in this developmental path because default can cause a lot of 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 damage, right? So how can you avoid those? Those negative uh, shocks. So that that's basically what I'm. That, I mean, I've I've I still have to find an answer to that to that puzzle. Uh, so uh, moving on to your article from Mercantilism to Free Trade: A History of Fiscal Building Capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you argue in this paper that mercantilism combined with low fiscal capacity typically led to a protectionist trap in which fiscal capacity developed slowly. In contrast, when mercantilism was combined with a high enough initial fiscal capacity, it eventually led to free trade and hence high fiscal capacity states. <laughs> uh, so could you give the most striking historical examples for both cases? Well, uh, so this is the thing. Uh, uh, the, the best example of successful mercantilism, basically adopting this uh, quasi, well, this uh, protectionist agreement with, with, uh, with uh, I'm, sorry, the artificial uh, uh, creation of monopolies, uh, the best example for that is Western Europe, mm-hmm. period. I mean, there, there are plenty of monopolies that were created just to uh, uh, raise taxes. Uh, salt monopolies, wool monopolies, trade monopolies, right? And there was nothing about those sectors that uh, made, uh, uh, that justified those monopolies unless you wanted to raise taxes, right? Uh, so, so, so the that that's basically an example of 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 a set of countries that adopted uh, uh, a mercantilist uh, policy, and by mercantilist I refer to this uh, creation of artificial monopolies because and this is a not this is not the standard yeah. definition. I follow uh, 
uh, Ekelun and Tolison in the definition, mercantilism is usually associated with this uh, military, uh, um, discrimination of military interests and, and, and trade. Um, uh, under my def Ekelon and Tolison definition uh, of mercantilism, we see that uh, it was prevalent in Western Europe and that these countries uh, endogenously uh, transitioned from a mercantilist equilibrium to a free trade equilibrium by investing a share of tax uh, revenue, of mercantilist revenue, into expanding uh, tax capacity. Because eventually, when your tax capacity is high enough, uh, protecting firms, I mean, having these artificial monopolies is not uh, profitable enough, right? So you are better off if you uh, drop protection and you allow uh, 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 basically a free trade or, or um, competition, right? Uh, so that's that's one set of cases, and the and and uh, uh, I have I think this this example about Bolivia uh, in in the fifties, nineteen fifties and sixties. Um, as an example of, of of a mercantilist trap, and I would say that I would I would say that even the the um, what's it is called the import uh, substitution industrialization is a good example of of these mercantilist traps. Uh, basically, many of these governments ended up captured by the same interests that they were protecting, and uh, the the foregone. Uh, you, basically, when a ruler decides whether to invest or not invest in state institutions, uh, you have to you have to uh, basically go through a, an, an investment phase, uh, meaning that you are going to reduce, uh, reduce consumption. And in this case, like you will pay fewer, uh, you will have less money to pay for hospitals, for roads, right? So when your fiscal capacity is very low, this foregone consumption, this short-term loss of utility is too big, right? So, uh, and if on top of that you add this policy capture by vested interest, then it's very hard to step away from, from mercantilism. And uh, as far as I understand, a lot of Latin American economies uh, faced these kind of traps in the, in the second half of the 20th century. Certainly, a lot of economists in this building would be critical of mercantilism, but could you tell us what advances mercantilism had for tax collection? Uh, well, so basically, uh, the, the, yeah, so uh, <laughs> uh, I... I I think to I, I, I like to believe that that uh, there is no right or wrong institution that, that the good institution has to be it's like there is no right or bad track right uh, every patient needs a different track mm. uh, <laughs> you, you shouldn't treat everybody in your hospital with the same track you might want to to use different different treatments don't treat anyone with poison you could say this well, thing works 90% yeah. of the time the other 10% it's unclear so we'll just yeah. give them what works 90% of the time F fair enough but but I don't think that that, that mercantilism is uh, is is basically the uh, the, the example of poison uh, it really matches the, this idea of mercantilism because basically we would be uh, ignoring the history of, of fiscal uh, building and state building of Western Europe, right? So, uh, and I, I tend to think of mercantilism as an intermediate institution, right? That uh, is good at certain points of development, but and it has its own perils, right? Because it, there is this, this trap that you have to avoid, otherwise you will stack to this negative uh, or or to, to negative or or inefficient policy. Um, 
Uh, so why why is it good? Well, so suppose that you are a ruler that uh, needs to finance um, basic um, um, basic basic um, uh, expenditures, and most of the time this is military expenditure or debt. Um, uh, and you have low fiscal capacity, right? You have a few tax inspectors. You don't have the ability to assess uh, wealth. You might strike strike these bargains with with firms by which you grant a monopoly right to this firm uh, in return for taxation and basically what you are doing is you are reducing the number of uh, uh, de facto taxpayers and that makes collection easier if in the process this firm becomes less competitive as one would expect actually uh, the ruler can threaten the firm with uh, dropping protection uh, to extract further uh, taxes from from the firm, right? So um, mercantilism can be good if what you are trying to do is maximizing tax revenue, and, and I mean, and one can think of circumstances in which that should be the top priority. And it, as any policy, it comes with uh, disadvantages. All right. So uh, next subject is a slight pet peeve of mine. Uh, so while we think of mercantilism and free trade as opposing ideologies, much 16th to 17th century trade in Europe was intra-country rather than inter-country. So mm -hmm. countries traded within each other, not between countries that much because transportation costs were extremely high. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, and uh, ma so a major focus of mercantilist policy, therefore, was to reduce internal trade barriers. For example, the Duc de Sully in, in France and Jean-Baptiste Colbert abolished various antiquated tolls exacted by petty lords in France. <laughs> uh, there are uh, five great farms, for instance, uh, many examples in other uh, Western European countries. Uh, so you believe that the net effect of mercantilism could have, in fact, been to create fewer, freer markets besides increasing tax revenues? Ah, well, uh, that's a question that you should uh, ask uh, Noel Johnson and, uh, and, and Mark uh, and, and Marco Yama, uh, who happen to be <laughs> very, very next door, actually, uh, because they have a paper on precisely on, on that case. And I think that they would uh, they would uh, agree with this idea that uh, these um, these uh, monopolies, uh, these tax farmers, were good at a particular point in time, and uh, that uh, France might have uh, basically uh, stayed in the mercantilist equilibrium a little longer than it should, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, the, the UK, the Great Britain stepped out of this equilibrium sooner, and that's why it grew, right? But the point, the point being that uh, 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 mercantilism might be an intermediate state uh, that allows to have a free trade equilibrium, a sustainable free trade equilibrium, right? And by sustainable means that everybody gets, uh, I mean, the consumption is, is guaranteed and the state uh, raises enough uh, tax, uh, taxes to basically pay for roads, education, and, and, and eventually uh, social, social problems. Certainly it's hard to think of examples of countries that's went from very closed markets to free trade in a period of, say, like 10 years, something like that. Definitely seems like mercantilism is a middle step for lots of Western European countries that eventually embark upon free trade. Yes. Classes, yeah. Well, there is this... I can check the, the source, um, but there was, like 10 years ago, published a, a, a published was paper 
a paper was published that showed that countries that implemented IMF recommendations, like conditionality, basically, uh, it was actually a, a recommendation, it was a condition, uh, that liberalized uh, uh, the trade, uh, never recovered uh, from a fiscal point of view, right? They, they had a chronic uh, budget deficits, right? So uh, that's what what I meant, what I said earlier. I mean that maybe the same treatment in, is not good for every every country. That the treatment, the policy recommendation might uh, might should be adjusted to the uh, uh, initial political and economic conditions of each of each country. Skipping ahead to that point, historians often take the position that free trade was a better strategy for small nations in Europe while larger nations were justified in keeping with mercantilism. So how reasonable do you think this view really is? Like, let's say, uh, just to give an example, like Holland, historians will say, oh, like that was a country, since it's so small, of course, it needs to have free trade, whereas like France, since it's big enough, like it, that mercantilist policies are definitely better for it. Yeah, I, I'm not well equipped to answer that to, to answer that question, but uh, I mean, even the, even the Dutch had a... a Big Merc, I mean the, the Dutch Indian company, right? Um, yeah. So, so, so um, I think that again, almost everybody experienced with uh, one version or another of mercantilism um, uh, in Western Europe, and uh, luckily uh, there were uh, power-sharing institutions in place that, in my opinion, uh, uh, prevented um, too much of policy capture. So. That I think that is crucial to understand why uh, Europe was able to step away from mercantilism and, and basically embrace free trade while having high levels of fiscal capacity. So let me put it this way. Let's say uh, I'm a ruler of uh, France and I want to decide, make a list of reasons for why mercantilism is better than free trade. Like what, 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 what are the top three reasons that I give? Is the size even on there? <laughs> France uh, is big enough. Uh, so, so which France? So, uh, current yeah, like France say, say or like, France? Yeah, let's say like Louis the Fourteenth France, or maybe uh, Louis the Fifteenth France, which is more mercantilist. Decided, you know, I would say. Uh huh. Uh huh. So yeah, I'm Louis the Fifteenth. I want, I want mercantilism. I need to give three reasonable reasons why <laughs> I, I should prefer mercantilism <laughs> over free trade. Like yeah. what? What? What's yeah? Is it does size make it on that list? <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't know if you can come up with three reasons. Uh, uh -huh. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a dangerous institution, so it shouldn't be uh, taken lightly. But uh, if you master it, and I think that rulers in Western Europe were able to master it, it provides the resources that you need in the short run, and it allows you to like. Uh, that was the case in France with the creation of, of the of the big tax farmers. It provided enough uh, taxation and crucially also domestic credit, right? And that allowed uh, the consolidation of the of the of the fiscal apparatus in, in in France eventually. That I mean, and I think that's that's why I think you um, uh, Noel Johnson would be the right person to ask this kind of counterfactuals because he knows the story by heart. Uh, he has done extensive research on this topic. And my sense is that he would uh, see this kind of, uh, I don't know if he would call them mercantilist institutions, but these artificial monopolies as part of, of this developmental uh, uh, path um, that in this case ended relatively well. 
Uh, so by the time the Western European countries adopted it, what advantage did free trade have over mercantilism in building overall fiscal capacity? So by the time, uh, by the time that, well, um, by the so, um, the the, it's not the advantages basically uh, come from from the fiscal apparatus being developed enough, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no there's no debate here. If you if you can raise taxes for from income from excises, what you would have. A mercantilist equilibrium and mercantilism is 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 bad because basically you are creating monopolies uh, and that's bad for consumers, but also uh, you you might be you might be protecting a firm that is not um, cutting edge that might not be operating the, the the best technology and that's also bad for for consumers. So I think that uh, once you can tax your People, uh, your consumers. I, I, I think that basically the, there are everything are. All, I mean, I can only think of advantages. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so how was the shift from free trade to mercantilism possible in the first place? Like, what motivated some European nations, like the Netherlands, to abandon mercantilism more quickly than others, such as Spain and France? Mm -hmm. Well, um, that um, I, I'm. That is out of the of of, of the realm of this uh, piece that I that I wrote in 2015. Uh, my my hunch is that um, again they they saw this the the perils of of, of, of protectionism and 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 luckily not luckily enough uh, and the parliamentary system in in the Netherlands was uh, strong enough to to prevent this from uh, going on and they also had a very strong system of, of domestic credit that would allow them to uh, um, uh, mobilize resources in case of, of 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 need so basically there was no reason uh, that I can I mean a priori uh, that uh, made mercantilism uh, um, Necessary, other than policy capture, right? So, and policy policy capture a priori is harder, or is easier to happen uh, when you don't have uh, uh, people that represent the the welfare of consumers uh, involved in the in the policy arena. Continuing with this idea of the advances of free trade, wouldn't most, if not all, European countries that adopted free trade been better off if they had done so sooner? And what they actually did? Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe, um, and that's that's when when it's hard to move from uh, a theoretical model, like a parameter. You have to, you you find this cut in the parameter space, right? Uh, and it's hard to map that to uh, to the to the actual facts. Basically, they uh, allow us to uh, simplify complexity. It, it's hard to come up with the right counterfactual. Um, uh, m maybe the uh, maybe maybe things would have been better sooner had uh, European powers uh, moved away from mercantilism sooner. Uh, maybe I mean a, a lot that 
So, so, so there's the question of whether European states prefer mercantilism because it was really more efficient or whether they were just nationalistic and wanted to continue with the status quo. So there's status quo bias, of course. Lots of people would mention that, I think. It's just once you already have mercantilism, it's hard to move away from it. Yeah. And then that leads to, like, when you really need to move away from it, it's inefficient because you don't want to move away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's like, you know, you would say, like, in a perfect world, a country would switch more quickly from mercantilism to free trade. Yeah. I think, you think that's fair, or is even that somewhat questionable? The country's uh, keeping up pretty much <laughs> with, with what they needed to do. No, but I, I, I like the idea of bringing nationalism into, into like, the, the equation, uh, because uh, maybe this nationalism is actually covering uh, vested interests, right? So maybe there's... Maybe. Maybe, so, maybe so, they're just nationalists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe it's purely ideological, non-material, or maybe the people or the sectors that are being protected by these mercantilist arrangements uh, want to make a case uh, to keep protection and a good way to, to, to basically make it happen is to appeal to... Uh, nationalism, right? So um, one has to be careful uh, in analyzing nationalism and when it speaks to actual uh, uh, material interest or when it speaks to non, I mean, to basically genuine uh, nationalist uh, uh, interests. Um, yeah, it definitely seems to me like mercantilism would have a lot more appeal to nationalists than free trade. Mm-hmm. But you could try to make the nationalist argument for free trade, but I think it's just way easier to say we need to like protect French farmers mm-hmm. and so on and stuff like that. Yeah. With free trade, you could say, oh, look, like lots of other countries are already doing it. They're getting super rich because of it. We'll make France awesome by having a lot of free trade. <laughs> I think that's going to be a lot harder than just saying, no, no, we need to protect our local French grain farmers and so on. Yeah. So, are, uh, are we still talking about history? Or? Yeah, yeah, you know, we're still talking about it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was pretty much as, bad, as true then as it is now that people really liked, like mercantilism would appeal to people more today, just like it would appeal to people yeah. more back then. Yeah. No, there is a reason, I think, why mercantilism took off when it did. And, you know, you, you, like, like free trade could have, it seems like all else equal, free trade might have just been favored by some countries, mercantilism by others, but... Since mercantilism has a lot of appeal to regular nationalistic people, yeah, uh, I think it, it definitely got a big boost from that. Yeah, no, of course, and I think that there are things that we might want to perfect in the in the international trade uh, about international trade, and uh, because everything can be improved, and a lot of things can be improved. Uh, that said, I think that these appeals to protectionism, to like uh, old school protectionism, are uh, can be can can be really harmful for for the economy and that, that means that is uh, uh, that's harmful for for the people I mean uh, right for consumers yeah, for I suppose like the main difference in, in historical reason. terms would just be that there would be a lot more regionalism so like like few people in France would really in 1700 really consider themselves friends mm-hmm. they would consider themselves being from parts of, different, of France you know mm-hmm. Norman or that or even like Identifying yeah. more like as a town, yeah. from a town, yeah. or like front, or like even like as Catholic okay. or Christian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you could say like you could have developed like the Catholic free trade. Let's just have free trade between Catholics, and why didn't that take off? Because that's not what Europe was Catholic. But yes, it, it's definitely an interesting point. Um, I also think that religion was probably more important for people back then than nationalism. Uh, 
think yeah, that, that was for many sweats. centuries. Yeah. <laughs> that was the main source of, of, of social yeah. identity. Yeah, yeah. So, so like in the modern day, I think that it's totally switched. So interesting to see how you still see arguments for uh, nationalistic arguments for, for, for mercantilism back when nationalism was not that important as compared to religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so last question, what will your next research focus be on, Professor Quirrell? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, so uh, one one of the one of the things that um, really really interests inter- interests me and, and is we have already talked about is this uh, the relationship between civil wars and state building. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think that there is much to be said about this, particularly if you want to understand state building after World War Two, uh, because what we see is that uh, there is a decline in interstate. Uh, warfare uh, and that there is a lot of civil war going on uh, in the in the emerging economies, developing world, and we need to we need to understand how that how that influences um, um, state building. Um, uh, so that that's one 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 thing, and uh, if uh, there are also more like pressing needs maybe uh, in, in, in the profession uh, in those that study uh, taxation and the politics of taxation is uh, one about um, about uh, one project that I'm thinking about is about in, um, basically international loopholes um, uh, in, in tax regime basically how how um, governments coordinate to prevent uh, having these um, um, fiscal um, paradises uh, um, and, and, and also what people think about it, right? And, and, and under what conditions people would be willing to uh, uh, stop that from happening. Because we might think that everybody would be on board, but there is some work, for instance, in the... In, in the realm of uh, uh, environmental policy uh, and f- the fight against climate uh, change uh, conducted by Ken Shivi, uh, Michael Bechtel and, and, and co-authors that show that, uh, well, um, people might not be as uh, f- uh, supportive of fighting climate change once you basically uh, quantify the impact on uh, individual consumption that that would uh, in, involve, right? So maybe with international taxation, we find the same kind of um, individual level explanation for why this is not really moving moving forward. Well, thanks very much for being on the podcast, Professor Clairaut. If you enjoyed this installment of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next month, also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. I'm Aiden Kaplan. And, and together, together we are the History Twins. twins.